You may know who Jacob Marley is, character from the Christmas Carol, and you might be thinking, J.D., it's not Christmas, but there's a reason why I'm bringing him up. He's the deceased business partner of Ebenezer Scrooge that shows up to Scrooge at the beginning of the Christmas Carol and warns him of the, the coming judgment, the coming consequence of the life that he is living and and warns him out of concern for him that he not become like Jacob Marley himself, who had been at that point destined, having crossed over into uh, the, the afterlife, had been destined to carry his riches as shackles and burdens, as a haunting spirit. Of course, that's not a biblical portrayal of the afterlife. But there's a little-known backstory of Jacob Marley's demise. Little-known because I just thought it up this week. <laughs> there's a little-known backstory of Jacob Marley's demise and of what it is that filled those boxes and those lockboxes and treasures that burdened him down throughout his haunting afterlife. You see, Jacob Marley had figured out a way to take his riches with him. After death, he had figured out a way that if he, he if he could convert all of his riches to bars of gold, and and he found out from a from a um, ancient shaman what what symbol to engrave on those bars of gold that would allow him to actually transport those bars of gold with him into the afterlife, and upon death. He came to St. Peter at the pearly gates, which are also fanciful ideas. And at that point, he was told, if you're going to come in here, you need to leave all that behind. At that point, he says, yeah, do you have any idea what it took for me to figure out how to do this, to how, to how to get all my riches here with me? There's no way I'm leaving these behind. There's no way I'm letting these go. And to that, St. Peter said, well, then you can't enter here. And Jacob Marley said, well, I guess that's how it is then. And as he turned to walk away, St. Peter said, what in the world do you have in those boxes anyways? He says, oh, wait until you see. And he opens one of them up. And Peter looks at it and says, seriously? We pave our streets with that stuff. I think many of you have probably heard that in another form, but I don't think we come to St. Peter after death or a pearly gate necessarily, but we do come to a narrow gate during this life. We come to a narrow gate through which all people must be able to pass through on earth if we are to enter heaven. Afterlife. If we are to have a life that is eternal in its nature, beginning now of abundant life and lasting throughout eternity. This morning we're talking about the idea of happiness. And I want to challenge you to allow God to redeem your idea 
of happiness. How do these ideas resonate you with regarding happiness, regarding eternal joy, obtaining the kingdom of heaven or of the kingdom of God is used synonymously with the kingdom of heaven? How does that sound to you as far as bringing happiness? Obtaining the kingdom of God, being comforted, being a party to inheriting the entire earth. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Sounds like that could bring happiness. How about being totally satisfied? That sounds pretty good too. These ideas we're good with. And for followers of Christ, these are blessings that we will experience for all of eternity. Knowing Christ as our Savior. But it's the process that Jesus encourages us to embrace. It's what we experience here on earth as followers of Christ that we need to deal with between now and then. In fact, following Christ, allowing him to teach us involves embracing his standards of happiness, allowing him to redeem our idea of happiness. You see, his eternal happiness comes through being broken and poor in spirit. Mourning what grieves us, and more and more, mourning what grieves him. Holding back our strength with meekness. Eternal happiness comes through hunger and thirst in this present day. By allowing God to redeem our idea of happiness, we unlock eternal blessings that we can enjoy in Christ and with Christ for all of eternity. So we look at the first half of the Beatitudes this morning and we find these happy circumstances that come along with things that we don't consider to be blessings. Where our Lord says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. You might recall from last week this idea of blessedness that that is being communicated here. We don't pick it up as well in the English. It means to be eternally happy. It is a happiness that cannot be tied to circumstance because it's impossible with changing circumstances to experience this level of happiness. I I talked about how it is actually describing a joy that was typically in literature at the time of Jesus' day was reserved for only describing the mythological gods, those that were in complete control of their world, or those who had died and passed on into paradise. Those were the only circumstances in which this idea of blessedness or eternal happiness had been used to describe. It reaches deeper 
than anything of outward circumstances can cause. You can almost hear and see the crowd lean in when Jesus says, Blessed are... Then he says the poor in spirit. Those who mourn. Those who are meek. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And being poor in spirit, as I touched on last week, is the first step of knowing Christ. It is the first of these opportunities for us to have the Lord redeem our idea of happiness. And it is the doorway to others. It is the narrow gate of salvation. Let God redeem your idea of happiness by recognizing that you are unrighteous. That you cannot redeem yourself. That you are bankrupt in spirit. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of God, of heaven. Means to be spiritually bankrupt. No ability or worthy, no, no worthiness or deserving of a relationship with God. You know what being bankrupt means? That means I owe all of these people, and not only do I not have any personal wealth, I can't even pay my debts. We're described in this way in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 7. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, verse 1 says. Then praise the Lord, picking back up in verse 4 of Ephesians 2. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. This describes any person who has received Christ as their Savior. And that's evidenced by the Holy Spirit indwelling us. He goes on to say, by grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We, we come to God bankrupt in spirit, unable to, having nothing to offer him that would make us worthy of a relationship with him. And we walk away with the immeasurable riches of his grace. And he's going to show us those for all of eternity. That's what he says. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and it will take all of eternity for God's children to see the immeasurable riches of God's grace because they're immeasurable this is what it takes for us to be able to know God as our savior or as Jesus puts it to be a part of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God being poor in spirit is required for salvation. Like I said, it is the narrow gate. The most basic step of repentance for salvation is repenting from the idea that we could ever be good enough. That is the most basic idea. That is why Matthew chooses when he summarizes 
or when he starts to lay out the gospel of the kingdom, which he calls it, and having summarized all that Jesus is preaching as repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, Matthew takes us to the narrow gate of entering that kingdom of heaven, that kingdom of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus talked about a rich young man, or, or I should say Matthew describes a true situation in which a rich, rich young man comes to Jesus. This is a philanthropic guy. This guy is like, you know, giving, all the, giving it all away. He's tithing. He's, he's um, trying to live a good life. And he comes up to him in Matthew 19, and we'll, we'll get there in a few years. Teacher, what good, what good deed must I do to... to have eternal life, he asks Jesus. And Jesus, throughout this conversation with him, mentions, says, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. And this man says, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And if you can believe this, the young man said to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? This guy obviously wasn't sitting in for the Sermon on the Mount, which we will see throughout this. Jesus got straight to the first commandment. Have no other gods before the God of heaven. When he said, if you would be perfect, go sell what you you possess and give it to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus got straight to the idea, you are poor in spirit. Your money is your idol. There's no way you can be good enough. Just like there's no way that any of us could be good enough. If somehow you think that you have merited God's grace, you're not getting it. And I mean you, you don't understand the idea of grace. But according to this verse, also you're not getting it in the idea of you are not receptive to God's grace. If you think that somehow you merit God's grace. I've shared with you before, even, even as a rebellious teenager, I knew that something was wrong when I went to church with my cousins in Limestone Cove, Tennessee, just across the border of North Carolina, in Appalachia. And I hear the preacher preach that one Sunday, and he says, people ask me, preacher, why is it that bad people have to go to hell? And, and my jaw dropped, even as a rebellious teenager, when I heard him say, I tell them, if God let bad people into heaven, that wouldn't be fair to all of us that deserve to be there. I'm sorry, but according to the idea of being poor in spirit is the narrow gate of salvation. That is an unconverted preacher. Being poor in spirit is also evidence of God's grace. Jesus warns those who start believing all the compliments they get. 
when he says in Luke 16, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. For us to recognize that nothing in my hand I bring, only to thy cross I cling, that is an act of God's grace. For us to be shaken from our self-righteousness. I have up for here um, Martin Luther's biography by Eric Metaxas. And, and this was so profound uh, when I read it. When by read it, I mean I, I listened to it in an audio book. <clears throat> I'm just going to stop telling you that. Can I just always say I read it and have a clear conscience? Okay, there we go. He says, Luther saw in this the very essence of Christian theology. God reached down not halfway to meet us in our vileness, but all the way down to the foul dregs of our broken humanity. And this is holy, and this holy and loving God dared to touch our lifeless and rotting essence. And in doing so, underscored what this is, that this is the truth about us. In fact, we are not sick and in need of healing. We are, not we are dead and in need of resurrecting. You hear that? We are not sick and in need of healing. We are dead and in need of resurrecting. We are not dusty and in need of a good dusting. We are fatally befouled with death and fatally toxic, and fatally toxic filth and require total redemption. If we do not recognize that we need eternal life from the hand of God, we remain in our sins and are eternally dead. And so because God respects us, he cannot reach us only if we are, he can, I'm sorry. So because God respects us, he can reach us only if we are honest about our condition. That's what is meant by blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The Apostle Paul shared his own understanding of being completely incapable of being good enough when he says in Romans 7, I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Let Jesus redefine what you think it means to be successful. It's not being independent of God's help, but recognizing your need, your dependence on Him. It's not being self-sufficient in your provision, but recognizing your insufficiency. It's recognizing that you are deficient or poor in spirit and in need of His grace. Secondly here, I want to challenge you. Let God redeem your idea of happiness by grieving with hope. He said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The tense here is 
Blessed are those who are actively mourning. Continually mourning. This mourning should mark the Christian's life as one that is needing comfort. Comfort of the Lord. Notice it doesn't say they are comforted. They shall be comforted. It's a grief that's saddened by the sin that we see around us and that we see in our own hearts, in our own lives. It's a disappointment that we feel for those who are being encouraged further down the rabbit hole, convinced that if everyone would just embrace their sin, then they could finally be happy. And they won't be. It's a sadness that knows that this world wasn't made to include pain. It wasn't made to include death. It wasn't made to include broken relationships. It's a sadness that identifies with God's sadness over our broken world. And we're told that final comfort will come at the end of the age. IU fans, do not worry. It is not going to come down to God missing a three-pointer with five seconds left in the game. Rest assured. For those who follow Christ, life involves mourning and grief. But eternal happiness can be looked ahead to in the presence of the God of all comfort. You know, as, a, as an 18-year-old, I thought I had, I had seen life. I'd lived all the relationships and been hurt as much as I needed to be hurt to realize that, that I just didn't need anybody. I didn't need a girlfriend. I didn't need to get married. I remember writing a poem, and, and one of the lines, and as bad as it was, it said, um, but now my wounds are healed. Now I'm a fortress afraid to feel. I I took my first trip to Albania. The the dad who was the host of our home would wipe the tears from his eyes as he would tell about his first wife and how much he missed her. I sat in the home because we were visitors to the area and, and there had been a death of a new bride who left her young husband with children. and Their stove had exploded. And I sat there and watched him looking blurry-eyed with that 18-inch stare. And just because we were guests in the community, it was customary that we would go and sit with the mourners. And I was sitting there thinking, why open yourself up to this? C.S. Lewis put it this way in Surprised by Joy. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in a casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, 
it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable, end quote. To love when walking with Christ as our Savior is to mourn. It's to mourn those that do not know Him. It's to mourn those that walk away from the foundation that they were raised with in Christ. It's to mourn our lost world. It's to mourn what grieves our Lord. We mourn the loss of loved ones. To walk in relationship with God means to love Him and to be grieved by the sin that grieves Him. Those in the women's study on Monday night are praying for their adult children who are far from the Lord. I remember a pastor telling me, if you want to have the best attended prayer meeting or Bible study, just say you're going to be praying for prodigals. It's the truth. And as followers, followers of Christ, we certainly mourn in a different way. As a pastor told his, his congregation, we mourn with hope. It doesn't bother us that they're going to put us in a box, and they're going to dig a hole, and they're going to drop us in that hole, and they're going to cover us with dirt, and they're going to go back and eat potato salad. As followers of Christ, we mourn, but we mourn with hope. That we will see one another again. But death is no less painful. Still there's great hope. For our beloved ones in Christ. Some of you men. We gathered together around Susie. Laying on her couch. As she wasted away. Praying for her healing. I remember touching Dave Shurfee's face on hospice as he grew thinner and thinner. I sat with Mary Sue and Sandy the day they lost Bob, suddenly. I've been in the room when Terry breathed his last. I visited with Karen and family after Keith's passing. I've sat by Fred reading Psalm 139 to him just hours before his passing. I visited with Penny and Brian after losing Leighton and then losing Sharon shortly after. Called Sue on the phone to talk about Jim and everything he meant to people. We mourned together with Sandra's quick turn from health and sharpness to ill and confused. We hurt for Carol and the family as she's too confused to stay in her home or to come to church. But we mourn differently. We mourn with hope. We will be comforted. We can stand on that in faith. And we stand together.
Also, let God redeem your idea of happiness by letting him be your hero. He said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meek does not mean weak. It means strength under control. No woman wants a weak husband. Every woman wants a meek husband. Jesus is meek. He held back his strength when he was being arrested. When he asked Peter, do you not realize that I could talk, call to my Father in heaven and he could send 12 legions of angels at this moment? And his strength will be on display when he comes as our judge and as judge of the earth. And he is meek toward his followers. He tells us, as we will read in Matthew 11, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. I think every mom has said to her sons, Wait until your father gets home. Or the little brother that says, Do you know who my brother is? Are you sure you want to mess with me? Both a warning of a strength that backs them up. And the same is for us. The law of the jungle might be might makes right. And to the victor goes the spoils. And for the most part, that is how the world works. But the world to come will be, it will belong to the follower of Christ. Do you realize that? And our present behavior should mark, should be marked by meekness. And this is why we can love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Pray that they would join us in our persecution. And our hearts should break for them rather than demanding our rights. Demanding that those rights would be respected in this present age. Our Father is coming home. Our brother Jesus is coming with a sword. And knowing Christ, we know that we will be co-heirs with him. We will reign with him in the end. We stand on that in faith. Lastly, I want you to challenge you to let God redeem your idea of happiness by letting your longings be your reminder. Let your longings be your reminder. It says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Again, the tense here is those who are constantly hungering, those who are constantly thirsting for righteousness. Like the other conditions, I I don't like to be hungry. I don't like to be thirsty. I get hangry really fast. I don't like any more than I like to be poor or I like to be sad and mourning. Another quote from C.S. Lewis that I love. If we find in ourselves a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. I'll read that again. If we find in ourselves 
if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. Followers of Christ, we are far better still even though we experience hunger and thirst to see God's righteousness in this world. We, we long to see His righteousness more evident in our lives. We long to see those we care about no longer walk in foolishness and sin leading to destruction. We ache to see our culture stop its sinful madness. But we can rejoice in the promise that we are blessed because our hunger will be filled and our thirst will be quenched. We will see what Habakkuk 2.14 states. We will see this come to reality. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The fact is this, is that because we're always longing, there's a, there's, there's a truth of things. The grass is always greener. The grass is always greener on the other side of wherever it is that we are. Uh, I, I've, we've laughed together about this before. Uh, Jay Prosser has told me that when they were raising goats, he actually saw one time a goat that was outside of its pen but actually had its head through the fence and was eating grass inside its pen. (laughs) Isn't that how we are? Put us in a circle, draw a line around it, and we're going to want what's on the other side of that circle. Did you know that's what God's commands are? They're that line. God has given us longings for good things, success, appreciation, intimacy, security, comfort, pleasure. These are God-given longings that he gave us. It's kind of like we long for sugar, right? And we're given that to lead us to vitamins and fiber. We find them in fruit. So what we do in our industries is we take the fruit, extract the sugar, throw out the vitamins and fiber, and put the sugar in something else. Right? But we're given longings for things. Success, appreciation, intimacy, security, comfort, pleasure. But God has put a a line around our behavior of commandments. There are pleasures that are incredibly intense that are only to be reserved within the boundary of marriage. There is security that that we can have, but unlike the rich young ruler, we are not allowed for those riches to be our God. God draws a line of commands around us and to pursue those pleasures, to cross that line in pursuit of those pleasures, he calls sin. And what's most important is that we glorify God, recognizing that true satisfaction comes through him. 
within the boundaries. To say, Lord, I long for more security than I have here, but I will not cross the line to get it. I long for more intimacy. I long for more success. I long for more appreciation. But I will not sacrifice your glory to get it. It must just mean that I was made for another place. It must just mean that these, these longings, this hunger and thirst will only be satisfied in your presence. And those behaviors, let me just tell you, that promise to satisfy those longings in this life, to pursue them, no matter what lines we cross, leads to addiction and bondage and destruction. Submitting our longings to the Lord brings Him glory. And God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. As my favorite writer likes to say. We better, we're better off recognizing that the true longings of our hearts are for as the promised, as the psalmist proclaims, as the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? That's really what's going to satisfy our longings. A great encouragement and example that we can take from these statements is that they were also experienced by Jesus. He mourned. He was grieved. He put his fingers, his hands on the eyes of a blind man. And it says he looked up to heaven and sighed. He was grieved. He mourned. He was meek. He, He was ultimate power under submissive control. He hungered and thirsted for righteousness to win out around him. As we turn our thoughts to Jesus' ultimate emptiness, his ultimate thirst, his ultimate hunger, his ultimate meekness, his ultimate grief on the cross, I want to remind you of what was written 700-some years earlier about him. In Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. You see, Jesus, as he teaches, the true eternal happiness comes through thirst. It is unquenched in this world. It comes through grief that grieves with hope. It comes through being meek. He also lived it. And he lived it to the extent that we will never, ever experience. And his death for us is the perfect embodiment of that. 
Isaiah 53 continues and says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, folks, for as bad as this world seems, for as grieving as it is, for as much as we hunger and thirst, it is nothing like it would be if our Savior had not come and conquered it for us. And taken the penalty of our sins for us. So that we could have hope. So that we can walk through this dark world in relationship with God. And then he invites us to remember his weakest, most grieving, most painful moment. And celebrate it. As the act of our redemption. We're going to be led. During for two songs. And you know the way that we do communion here is. We encourage you during that first song. If you want to go and get the elements. And bring them back to your seat. And just think about it. As you partake. Or if you want to, if you want to go as a household or individually. And take them at the table. It's as you feel led. Encourage you to, to go and do that during our first song here. And during our second, we're just going to be able to celebrate what Christ has bought for us. If you know Christ as your Savior, that would be evidenced by His Holy Spirit indwelling you. Having received Him as your Savior, we invite you to this table. Thank you. Let me close this in prayer. Jesus, thank you for taking everything that we deserve. And yet our sinfulness still causes us to complain about our circumstances. About the hurt that we feel. About the world around us. Thank you that you purchased our perfection. Thank you that you offer us your righteousness in place of our sin. Thank you that you save us to sanctify us, to allow us to know you more and more deeply and deeply, for there to be less of us and more of you in our lives. Thank you, Father, that you know that this is a lifelong process. And yet you will welcome us into your presence at our passing, wherever we are in that process, Father. If we're standing in the righteousness of Christ. 
Thank you for the sacrifice that was made. And I pray, Lord God, that that sacrifice would resonate with us more deeply. As we participate in this practice that you gave us. Lord, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.